Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known. Please be advised that in this episode, there are discussions of topics that some listeners may find upsetting. Hello and welcome to What I Wish I'd Known, in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational speakers and work experience opportunities. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And in this podcast, we talk to extraordinary people who've lived astonishing lives, brushed with displacement, disease, financial ruin, abandonment, bereavement. And not only have they survived, but thrived. Loss and adversity are a part of life, but an imperfect past isn't always an indicator of what's to come. But why is it that often the people with the hardest beginnings in life become the most successful adults? And is there something to learn from these people who perhaps have the strongest sense of what matters most? In this series, we'll be speaking to a collection of remarkable individuals on how they achieved success in the face of adversity. And we'll be reflecting on some of our greatest interviews to date with new thoughts and revelations. Welcome to What I Wish I'd Known. In this episode, we're talking to Bridget Philipson, the Shadow Education Secretary. She was selected from an all-women shortlist as the Labour candidate for Houghton and Sunderland South in 2009 and elected as an MP at the 2010 general election. She refused to serve under Jeremy Corbyn, but she's one of Keir Starmer's most trusted allies who was Shadow Chief Secretary before getting the education brief. Alice, what struck you from the interview? I think what I found most extraordinary about her was she's so poised and dignified and she's immaculately turned out but she talks about how when she was little in Washington she was not even allowed to play with the other children that she was ostracized at school because of her extreme poverty and because her mother was a single mum and even in these very tight-knit communities that you'd think they'd have embraced the family because she didn't know who her father was she never even met him although he was a teacher they were very much seen as, as being other and different and they didn't parents didn't want their children to come and socialise with her. Of course, now she's Shadow Education Secretary. All of them probably want to know her. I always felt a bit of an outsider because my mum was a single parent and she brought me up on her own. And that was quite unusual then. So it was only when at school my friends' parents started divorcing that there were other children in the same situation as me. But it was in the 80s there weren't there weren't as many single parent families. And there was always a sense for me of, of judgment that we were judged, we were a bit different. It's only now that I look back that I reflect on just how unusual some of that was. At the time, it was just how things were. It was what we experienced. I didn't know anything any differently. And that made a big difference. But it's only with, with hindsight really that I look back and think that's, that's not a childhood in terms of the poverty that I would want for children. It just made her more and more determined to prove the doubters wrong and that she wanted to succeed. Aspiration is everywhere. It's not just a middle-class thing, that working-class communities are full of aspiration uh, and that it's patronising not to think that's right. And she just wants all children to have the sort of chances and opportunities that she did. What's extraordinary is that she did have opportunity, but also that her grandfather was very involved in her life and was adamant that she had books and she also had music, she learned the violin and her mum had really quite strict views of how to bring up her child and what to do and how they should behave and to make sure that she always had enough. And then the teachers did the same, so they wanted her you know, to go and look at Oxford to see what she should do next. So all around her were adults who kept helping her and pushing her and discovering her interests and I thought that was really important and actually really amazing that you know that it's not where you come from it's the people around you that really matter. The deputy head teacher Mr Hurst who was a very fierce character sent a message to me in my class and said he wanted to see me in his office immediately and like when Mr Hurst wanted to see you that 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 was that meant something and he he basically said um, he'd got the list of you know of students who'd signed up for this trip to Oxford and my name wasn't on it and he expected my name to be on it by the end of the day. 
And this and the school were brilliant. They they really encouraged us. And the year that I went to Oxford, there were six of us that went to Oxford or Cambridge from from my state school, which was the best they'd ever achieved. It was the other teachers too who helped prepare me for the interview. They gave me extra reading. I started out studying history and French and they gave me extra French grammar to learn and extra reading material and, and all kinds. I mean, they were amazing, absolutely amazing people. So having done the Education Commission, Rachel, what most struck you about the Shadow Education Secretary? Well, she's very serious and I think she does want to change things. I'm not quite sure how much they'll announce before the election, but you do get a sense that she's got a real blueprint for what she wants to do differently. And it's all about making sure all children do have the chance to fulfil their potential. And she feels that at the moment, too many kids like her are kind of seeing their talent and potential wasted. The prospect of winning an election, having lost four general elections and being able to change our country, not just talk about the difference we would make, is exciting and daunting in equal measure. The chance to change our country and to transform education and to shatter that class ceiling, to break down barriers, to give all young people the chance to get on. That's what I came into politics to do and if I were able to do that as Education Secretary, it would be wonderful. In this episode of What I Wish I'd Known, Bridget Philipson, Shadow Education Secretary, tells us her story of triumphing against the odds. We meet Bridget in the News UK building, just beside our canteen, which is extremely busy because it's one o'clock, so you may hear people chatting in the background. And Bridget had just come from her daughter's primary school leaving party, where they'd sung from Matilda, and she said she'd been very emotional because it was sort of the end of an era and she was about to go on to secondary school. It was my daughter's year six leavers assembly and then I headed into Westminster having tried not to cry too much. <laughs> did they do a song or a performance? They did a song from Matilda. They'd done a performance of Matilda last week and they did a song okay. from Which Matilda. Which song did they do? Uh, when I Grow Up. Oh. Well, we should just start by talking to you about the area you grew up in. So you once said there was a sort of air of decline about the place. It was Washington, a town near Sunderland, a terraced house. Just describe the neighbourhood. What did you mean by that sense of an air of decline? So I grew up in a, in a terrace street, as you say. It was um, railway workers' cottages. So there was a railway line that ran at the bottom of the road, but that closed in the early 90s. And across the road, there'd been uh, offices associated with a chemical works, an insulation company. And they'd closed the offices, they'd flattened the land. So it was just wasteland across the way. The street itself was pretty run down. The houses were not in great shape it wasn't a desirable place to live people didn't want to be there and the houses themselves were in pretty poor condition so we had no upstairs heating the windows were pretty rotten I would go to bed in the winter fully clothed because it was so cold there was no heating upstairs and it just felt like an area that was on the slide and increasingly crime was on the up youth unemployment as time went on was incredibly high and lots of the kids around me had it even tougher, the poverty that they experienced was even more difficult than our own situation. And you once said that you grew up on the margins. Did you feel very excluded by society and left behind? I always felt a bit of an outsider because my mum was a single parent and she brought me up on her own. And that was quite unusual then. So it was only when at school my friend's parents started divorcing that there were other children in the same situation as me. But it was in the 80s, there weren't... There weren't as many single parent families. And there was always a sense for me of, of judgment that we were judged. We were a bit different. We didn't, I don't know, we didn't fully fit in. And my grandparents had come over from Ireland. My grandma had come over in the 50s to train as a nurse in the Northeast. And my granddad's family had moved over to Glasgow in the 20s. So we weren't part of those big families that lived locally. It was a very close community, mining community. Everyone knew each other. And lots of the families were very close, big families. We weren't a part of that. And then to add to it, there was just me and my mum and we were on our own and she wasn't working. It must have been really tough at times. Did you actually go hungry or did your mum always make sure that you had enough to eat, even if she didn't always? She always did her best to shield me from all of that as much as possible. And I had a very happy childhood, a very loving family. My mum was amazing. My grandparents had a big part in my life too. I know lots of the children in the street had it tougher and many of them were frequently going without food. My mum used to take it upon herself to often look after those children and try and feed for them. And 
give them a good start. She was, she was, is a very caring, compassionate person. It's only now that I look back that I reflect on just how unusual some of that was. At the time, it was just how things were. It was what we experienced. I didn't know anything any differently. And as time went on, our circumstances improved. My mum was able to work when I started school and that made a big difference. But it's only with, with hindsight, really, that I look back and think that's, that's not a childhood in terms of the poverty that I would want for children. Mm-hmm. But that happiness, the friends I had in my street, actually the independence that we had as children, we could, until things started to get tougher in, in terms of the crime, we could play out the back happily, we could play on the front street, there were no cars, nobody could afford a car, but it meant that it was quite safe and it was a nice place for children to, to play and to, to be independent. And was your mother worried when you went to school about things like school uniform and school meals and did that all add up then? Were there, could you see that she was struggling with that? And what about books? Did you have books in the house? We always had lots of books and newspapers and my granddad was the same. There was always a huge pile whenever I'd go to their house and they didn't live very far away. A massive pile of newspapers, a massive pile of books and he'd be giving them to me and teaching me algebra and showing me poetry. There was a real culture of mm. learning in our family and I think sometimes what gets a bit lost in the wider discussion about what it's like for working people to grow up in the situation I faced. There was and always is a real culture of self-improvement, of wanting to to learn and, and to improve as an individual and to that culture of, of education that existed in lots of the mining communities. And when we would go to Labour Party meetings, it was in the Miners' Welfare Hall, which had a library and had a focus on adult learning. That had been a big part of what the miners had organised themselves so that they could get on in life as well. My mum, because we were different and because you felt that sense of judgment about what it was to be in a single parent family, my mum was absolutely fanatical about making sure I was well turned out, nice, nice brushed hair, plaits, decent clothes, proper shoes. My grandparents would help where they could. They weren't big earners themselves, but they would buy me school shoes, help out um, as much as they could. But my mum was absolutely fanatical about making sure that I was well presented. And what about your dad? You you knew who he was, didn't you? But you didn't have any contact with him. How did that work? Did you feel angry with him? Or did you ever see him? My dad left when my mum was pregnant. So I never met him. He had no involvement in my life at all. He gave us absolutely nothing financially. Mm. Uh, as I got a bit older, I, that made me angry because I just couldn't understand how an otherwise responsible human being could fail to take responsibility for their actions. And, and he could was a teacher, to... wasn't he? He was a teacher. Mm. Did you meet him at all, ever? I never met him. Did you want to meet him? I had, no, I had no interest in meeting him. I never felt that I missed out. I didn't miss out. We were a loving family. I had my mum. We were incredibly close. I had my, you know, my grandparents too, my granddad in particular. I just never felt I missed out. It was never a source of any, of any particular pain or sadness. But I increasingly, particularly with the narrative that developed into the 90s around the rhetoric around single parents and everything that Peter Lilly mm. said and, and did, that was when I started to become more aware of the nature of our, our family situation. And I started to get a bit angry about the fact he wasn't mm. contributing. And mm. that was at the time when the Tories were establishing the Child Support Agency. And I do remember saying to my mum, like, why is it that he he's never given us anything? How could How could... And, and now as a parent, I just, even more, I can't comprehend mm. why he would behave in that way. But, you know, as a, as a child, it's not it's not for you to kind of seek to rationalise. Did he have another family, though, or did he have any other children, do you know? Not as far as I'm aware. So I heard when I was at university, I'd heard that he died. He'd moved moved to the US. Apparently, we heard through a mutual friend. He, he'd moved to the US and he died over there when I was at university. And how did that make you feel? I didn't feel anything. I'd had no relationship with him. That was his responsibility. It was around that time that my grandma had been diagnosed with breast cancer. That was what I was concerned about. I was Mm. the person that had had an involvement in my life, that cared about me, that loved me, not someone that, for whatever reason, had taken it upon themselves to to absent themselves from from our life. Mm. And your mother set up a domestic violence charity. Why did she do that? Did she have any previous experience or was it her friends or... Why was she driven to that cause? So my mum was a member of the Labour Party when I was growing up and that was part of how I came to be involved. She would take me along to meetings when I was a kid because there was no childcare available. So if she wanted to go, I had to go too. 
But at the same time, she became quite active and involved in the women's movement. So a number of her and her friends organised a women's group. I think they did so because one of her friends had experienced on-street sexual violence. But it was only when they started to talk amongst themselves that they realised that violence in the home was a far bigger issue facing women. And she started to, to campaign around that. She's always been a really passionate campaigner, really involved in, uh, in kind of social issues. And then I came along, so that kind of had to be paused for a while. But when I went to school, that was at the point at which she went full time, was able to work and the charity expanded massively and was able to open more provision. She sounds like a really extraordinary person. And what was her parenting style like? And I wonder also whether you, if it was just the two of you, whether it ever started to feel quite claustrophobic. You must have been incredibly close, but it also could have been quite sort of claustrophobic. She was very keen that I was independent and had opportunities to to discover who I was. So we were very close, but she was so keen that I had opportunities to to learn, to develop, to to do things differently. So, for example, I was always, as a child, really quite shy, quite quiet. You know, people. I remember my mum saying to me that people thought I, I had kind of um, speech issues because I just wouldn't talk to strangers people would come up to us and chat to us and I would just say absolutely nothing. So in order to to bring me out of myself a bit more, to make me more confident, she signed me up to Saturday morning drama lessons at a local community centre. And I went along to that and that was a really important opportunity. But also in broadening my horizons as a part of that, around that time Biker Grove television programme, BBC was a big children's programme and we all got to be extras on Biker Grove. And it just... It was something special and she wanted me to experience the world and think think big. And then one day you were burgled. What actually happened? We were burgled on quite a few occasions. On one occasion, um, burgled, I mean, they took anything of any value. We didn't have a huge amount, but mm. they took anything that was worth any kind of money. And um, we were threatened as a result because my mum did contact the police and did take it up. Um, did she know who'd done the burglary? She knew who'd done it. There were a number of individuals locally who were prolific. Um, he was one of them. I'll not use the nickname that he had, but it, he had a reputation. It, yeah. would, it would identify, but he had a reputation for being a very violent and volatile individual. And she was having none of it. She'd had enough, reported it to the police. And as a result, we were threatened. We had our windows put in. He turned up at the door. We ended up with a police box in the house because they cut our phone lines, so we couldn't contact the police. Um, we had so the police. he turned up with a, with a, and what was he doing? He was threatening? To threaten her into um, retracting her statement against him. With a gun or what? Uh, a, with, a, with, a, with a bat. Baseball bat. Oh, she sounds incredibly brave. She was, but she'd just had enough. And, you know, we'd been burgled on a number of occasions. Other people in the street had been intimidated. On one occasion, our neighbours had been intimidated into holding the goods in their house that had been stolen from our house. And people were just terrified. And she'd had enough and took a stand. And as a result, things did start to improve over time. He went to prison in the end. Other people in the street who'd been involved in criminal activity, they went to prison. I mean, the street emptied out at one stage. It was such an undesirable place to live. We had boarded up houses. People just would not live there. I mean, that was around this, you know, around that time, despite all of that, my mum bought the house off the council. We got some windows put in. We got central heating put in. None of that happened for the rest of the street for you until years later. And what she was also concerned about was as a single parent, and I, and I understand this more now as, as a parent myself, you know, as part of a couple, you're acutely aware of the responsibility that you have financial as well as emotional for your children. But she knew that if anything would happen to her, what did I have to fall back on? Mm -hmm. So in buying the house, she wanted to give me a foundation so that if anything did happen to her and I was on my own, I had somewhere that that was definitely would definitely remain mine. And did you also feel a sense of responsibility? Because you were quite nerdy and very hardworking. Was that part of it? Did you feel you wanted to give something back to your mother in some way? I just loved, I loved school and I loved studying. We had lots of fun and I, I always had lots of fun at school as well as, as studying hard, but it was about what I wanted to achieve. And she was always clear with me that she didn't want to push me in a particular direction. She just wanted me to work hard, find what I loved and 
and develop. And that, I mean, that's what I want for children now. I don't think it's about saying there is a particular path. It's about every child finding what they're good at, what they excel at, what makes them happy and making sure that there are opportunities for children across the country to, to have those kinds of experiences. And you taught another little girl to read, didn't you, at primary school. What happened? How did you realise she was struggling? So there was another family in the street and we were really close to them and I'm, I'm still in touch with, with Michelle today. She won't mind me mentioning her. And they, they, had it, they had it pretty tough and we were really close friends. She was a little bit older and I was a prolific reader when I was a child and she struggled so I used to sit with her and I would help her to to learn to read they went to a different school that was was my primary school was good their primary school was not not a great place to be and they weren't they clearly weren't getting support at all more or the teaching in the school that they needed and what age were you when you realized that education might be a way out a way to sort of move and progress did you did you have a sense of that when you were at school it was always just there in the background um, from from my mum, but also from from my granddad in particular. So he'd he'd grown up in Scotland. They'd moved over from Ireland to Glasgow. His dad had died when he was young, and they'd had to move around a bit. But the thing that he always taught me, the first thing he was made to do as soon as he was old enough, was to go and join the local library by his older sister. And the importance of reading, the importance of learning, it was just always there in the background. I just knew it was it was important but it was how you got on in life. Did you feel sort of proud to be a girly sword? And in a way, when that's used as an insult by Boris Johnson or David Cameron, or do you think that's a sort of a sign of luxury, that they have the kind of luxury to be able to do that? I think everyone should be encouraged to find what they're good at and to learn and to think. And that kind of dismissive attitude of others' achievements, I don't like it. And not everyone finds that the academic route is right for them. For me, it was, I loved it. And I loved school and I loved sport. I loved music. It was a range. And I, and, I want, and I want all young people to have that breadth of experience and that rich education. I was, I was, I was a quite serious, serious child at school and, and worked hard. Um, you were offered a chance to go down to Oxford to see what it was like. Why did you turn it down? So I, I, hadn't, I, would, have, I would have done it in all likelihood. I would have gone. I probably just I hadn't quite got around to signing up for it. But my... The deputy head teacher, Mr. Hurst, who was a very fierce character, um, sent a message to me in in my class and said he wanted to see me in his office immediately. And, and like when Mr. Hurst wanted to see you, that 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 was that meant something. And he he basically said um, he'd got the list of you know of students who'd signed up for this trip to Oxford, and my name wasn't on it, and he expected my name to be on it by the end of the day. And this and the school were brilliant. They they really encouraged us. And the year that I went to Oxford, there were six of us that went to Oxford or Cambridge from, from my state school, which was the best they'd ever achieved. And it was the other teachers too who helped to prepare me for the interview. They gave me extra reading. I, um, I started out studying history and French and they gave me extra French grammar to learn and extra reading material and, and all kinds. I mean, they were amazing, absolutely amazing people. So what was it like when you got there? Did, did you feel like an outsider? Did you feel different to some of the other students? I felt I had just as much right to be there as everybody else. What I found different was just how middle class it all was. It was less that it was full of very rich people. It was more that it was just people from very comfortable middle class homes who would talk about skiing holidays. They would ask you, for example, which school you went to. And I remember saying, I can tell you which school I went to. I can absolutely guarantee that you will have never heard of my school. Uh, not only had they never heard of the school, they, they never heard of the town I was from. And then I would say, well, you know, it's it's kind of between Sunderland and Newcastle. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, various kind of jokes about uh, about it being grim up north and, you know, had the electricity reached the north and this kind of... And it was done in good humour, but it does make you just think it makes you feel a bit distinct from some of the others did it make you much tougher though it made me more determined to to succeed because I I was absolutely going to to prove people wrong so what about now do you still feel like an outsider because in a way Westminster is another version of that with all kinds of assumptions when you've made a change in your life when you've come from one kind of background and you end up in another who you are and the values that you hold always remain with you even when you're living what is by all accounts now a very middle-class lifestyle. I'm very fortunate and I know I can remind myself every day uh, just how lucky I am to have the life that I live and it's such a privilege to be an MP and to, you know, to be Shadow Secretary of State. 
but you do kind of feel caught between two worlds. And then when you make that shift and you've been to a university like Oxford and you become a member of parliament, you know how lucky you are, but at the same time, you don't ever fully feel part of that world either. You're listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Rachel Sylvester and me, Alice Thompson. There'll be more from us just after this. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools with Alice Thompson and me, Rachel Sylvester. Do you worry that journalists and the media talk about the red ball and sort of dump everyone together from the north in that way? Do you feel that actually in some ways that's an insult that they're all going to vote the same way and they're all quite gullible? The caricatures around what people call the red wall and what voters want in life drive me absolutely mad because I think it's very one-dimensional. I think it imagines that it, it imposes a certain kind of worldview, particularly on working class people, that somehow they don't want better for their kids. And I think we've seen some of it this week around the discussion around university and what university's for and who ought to be going to university. But somehow it's not for other people's kids when actually some of the most aspirational, ambitious people that I've ever met are people that live in council houses like the one I grew up in, mm. who want the best for their kids and University might not be the choice that their children will make, but they certainly don't want politicians telling them that it's not Mm. for their children. And I think the wider caricature that somehow working class people aren't able to have a diverse range of interests, that you can't be from a house like mine or a community like mine and love music. I played the violin. I love playing the violin. Like you can't, but somehow you might not love poetry or history or or English. People are complicated Mm. and imposing this kind of, very narrow worldview, I I think is is patronising and disrespectful. And is that true on the left as well? That there's some on the left who almost romanticise poverty, you know, sort of go back to the mines, almost like a flat cap stereotype. People who worked, um, people who were miners, who worked in heavy industry, they were the people that were most determined that their kids would not live that kind of life. It was well paid, it was a secure job, but it was really, really tough. And, you know, still today you see the consequences of it in terms of industrial illness, you know, less so as as, as the heavy industry moves into, into the rear view mirror. But people suffered very serious physical consequences and, and in some cases tragically early death as a result of the contribution they made to the economy. And and people wanted their children to have a range of opportunities that, that they didn't enjoy. And for people that never experienced that kind of insecurity, I think they don't always necessarily understand the importance of people feeling safe in their own community, the impact that crime has on working class people. That's why it's, you know, I believe it's fundamentally a labour message that we want safe streets, safe communities, and we want people to have money to provide for themselves. I think what sometimes also gets lost is that poverty isn't just about the absence of money, important though that is, it's about the powerlessness that the lack of control, the lack of choice that you have in your life, the lack of freedom. And again, I think that's an argument we don't make often enough from the left, that freedom is a labour concept because we want to use the power of government to give people control over what's right for them. And do you worry about the two-child benefit cap? That I mean, you're an only child, but there is that sense that if you are on benefits, that if you're the third or fourth, I'm the third, that you would then have an issue. And it, it does it seem extraordinary that you're penalising large families in this way? I think the whole social security system that we've ended up with right now isn't isn't working uh, for the purposes that it was intended, whether that's supporting people back into work, the issues that exist around the childcare support that is a, a part of that system. I mean, the challenge that we would face 
as an incoming Labour government is that there are a whole set of massive challenges. Tackling child poverty will have to be a really key part of that. And, and what we set out just a fortnight ago um, with Keir Starmer around the mission on opportunity, tackling child poverty has to underpin all of that. But, you know, we as a party just can't make those kinds of detailed, precise commitments right now. And do you think you're a better politician because you come from a tough background? Do you think if somebody comes up a very easy route, in a way they're going to have less empathy for how much some people may be struggling? I don't think it necessarily follows that you lack empathy if you haven't lived it. And sometimes there can come a harshness of having lived it that there's a risk sometimes you don't then empathise with the struggles that others face because no one person's experience is the same. For me, it's about not pulling up the ladder behind me, but about providing opportunities for the people that come next. And I think that's true in politics where, you know, particularly for women, the advances and the struggles that others had, Harriet Harman's, for example, has made it easier for people like me. And, you know, she was always focused on providing better opportunities for the next generation of women that are coming through. But I, I don't think you have to have lived poverty to care about it. Mm. It's, for me, always a question of, of political priorities. Do you think you were more bullied at school or when you got to Westminster or, or Oxford? Was there one occasion when you felt that you had a really tough time from other people? Because actually, obviously, you had an incredibly loving family. In some ways, you had a better childhood because you obviously were loved and cared for. Was there a sense ever for you that you were sort of ostracised or bullied or had a difficult time? I mean, I was, yeah, I was bullied at school because of... Being a sport. Because of what... More because of where we lived mm. and, you know, some of the other children in the class, their parents didn't want their children mixing with people like me uh, or coming to where we lived. I mean, as time wore on, frankly, I wouldn't blame them because it wasn't, it wasn't a great place to be and the street was really on a downward spiral. But, and, and it's, it's funny, as, as, time drew on, as time drew on and our circumstances improved and I obviously ended up you know, doing well at school, going to Oxford. It's funny how people's perceptions will then sometimes mm. shift and they were more than happy for their kids to spend time with me. So what did the children say? Did they say I'm not allowed to come and play with you? Their parents just wouldn't allow them to, wouldn't allow them to come. And were they then mean to you in the playground? I can remember other children probably had it a bit tougher because there was, and I remember the bullying that would be directed towards the children that were clearly where their parents were really struggling to clothe them. And they were dishevelled and their families were really struggling again that was part of why my mind was absolutely determined that like I would be well turned out and you know it would be obvious that would be the case but people would talk about the fact we we were from a single parent family teachers would remark upon it other families would remark upon it again as time wore on you know parents separated families separated and there was perhaps a little less judgment and a bit more understanding that there are things that happen in your life that you can't control. My mum never planned to have me and life can be like that. And sometimes when we talk about, when we use the term social mobility and we talk about people's experiences through life, it's somehow seen as it's always, you're always on the up and things continue to improve and to improve. Actually, people can face hurdles along the way and sometimes things can get worse before they get better. Or something can happen in your life that completely transforms and changes the direction it would take. And I think recognising that it's not simply about what happens to the individual, but how, as a society, we can have better structures in place to support people when that does happen. Because it can happen to us all, mental ill health, unplanned children like me, losing your job, losing a partner. No one should kind of experience serious hardship because of that kind of change. And does your mother still have the same house? she's only just recently moved so she'd lived in that house from the late 70s so she'd been in there a little while while I when I was born and it's only in the last couple of months that she's moved and has that area changed it's completely different um so it's a nice place to live now when I finished university I moved back not just I moved back in with my man briefly but actually I bought a house on that street the first house I bought was on the same street and it was a lovely place to live and Across the way now, there's the old wasteland has got flats, houses. It's a big new, uh, new build housing estate just under that old railway line. And it's so different, so different. Did you feel when you were growing up that almost your mum had chosen to have you because it was, she, you know, it was quite an unusual thing to be in that situation? Or did you feel abandoned by your dad? 
Was it a mixture? I never felt abandoned by him. I was loved and supported by the family that mattered. Mm. And what it did teach me was that sometimes it's important to appreciate what you have and not yearn for what might have been. And looking at something like free school meals, would that have helped if everyone has a free school meal? Because then you're not as ostracised at school if it's about money or... Do, do, do you feel that quite strongly now with Labour, that you want to make sure that everyone feels they have the same sort of start? So I had a period of time on free school meals as a child until our situation improved. I mean, the, the stigma is... Schools have managed to address some of that stigma now, particularly with the way in which payments are made so that we're not identifying children where where that meal is being provided for them by the government effectively rather than by their parents. And, and I'm sympathetic to, to the arguments that people make about wanting to provide healthy meals at lunchtime. But what I've set out around universal breakfast clubs in every primary school, I think, addresses both the urgent need that lots of families are facing around simply providing for their children, but alongside that, the benefits that come of improved academic outcomes, improved attendance at school, but also support for families because the pressures that they will face around dropping off children, turning down work, all of that, I think, would be made a lot better with breakfast clubs in, in all schools. With the wider backdrop of, of an economy where there isn't any growth, basically no growth, and you know, absolutely damaged public finances, we will have to make really difficult choices about what we can and can't prioritise. And I think there is a wider question about whether free school meals for all children ought to be prioritised over, say, for example, additional support for children with special educational needs or disabilities or wider support around mental health, which is an enormous challenge at the moment for lots of young people. So there are lots of pressures on the system that will need addressing. And I would love to fix it all overnight because every time I visit a school, they tell me about all the things they want to change and I want to make it happen. But at the same time, even when you set aside the cost of that, the degree to which any system can cope with massive overheaval, you know, given the, the fragile nature of, of the system we have right now, it will just take time for change to fully come through. Although I am having spoken to people like David Blunkett and the period of time that he had as, as Shadow Education Secretary in the run-up to 97. If we win the next election, I want to hit the ground running and start making an impact from day one. The Independent Schools Council say you're chippy. Do you think you are? Or would you wear that as a badge of honour in a way? If chippy means that you want the best role kids and you want working class kids to succeed, then absolutely I'll take that badge and I'll wear it with pride. I find it incredible that in this day and age people would, would use that as a, as a slur against someone else. But I am absolutely resolute in wanting to deliver the best for kids in our country and people can say what they like. And you want to remove the tax breaks from private schools. Do you think that looks like class warfare? Or do you think actually you can explain it and is it the only fair way to address the social balance? I, I just don't think their tax breaks can be defended. I just don't think it's justifiable. I don't think they really, the arguments that they make in order to defend it really hold much water. And given what we could raise, and, and the, uh, the Institute for Fiscal Studies have, have backed up the fact that our, our figures around this are fiscally credible, we could raise that money and we could use that in addressing the really challenging circumstances we're facing around teacher recruitment and retention. So 6,500 new teachers, better mental health support in our schools and better support uh, for our teachers. And... I think the evidence is clear about what we could deliver. Again, in the run-up to 97, Labour had a commitment not a million miles away from this around removing assisted places and phasing, phasing that out. I think that's the logical extension of the work that began under the last Labour government. And, and so do you think it's immoral to send your children to private school because you're separating them out? Do you worry that it looks like you're sort of criticising aspirational parents who are trying to do the best for their children I know all parents want what's best for their children I would never criticize an individual parent for seeking to do what's right by their children I think this is a relatively modest and straightforward way we could raise additional revenue to put into state schools I think sometimes the nature of the discussion sometimes suggests that only those who send their children to private school are aspirational or ambitious for their children actually the majority of parents who send their children to state schools in big numbers are aspirational for their children I'm aspirational for them. I want the best for them. I want them to have the best that modern Britain can offer. What I would say private schools do well, and I think you know what I want to see happen within our state schools, is that breadth of curriculum, the opportunities to 
to develop as a person. When, I, when I'm kind of traveling around and I see the adverts for these private schools and they'll, you'll see uh, young people playing sport and music and they'll talk about the wide range of opportunities that exist. I can see why parents look at that and think, actually, that sounds wonderful. The challenge is to deliver that in all of our state schools. And I want parents to think that state schools are so wonderful and their children will get all of that amazing experience without having to even consider a private school. And does it worry that so many MPs do send their children to private school? They then don't understand. Would you ever send your own children to private school? It's not a choice that I would make. But again, I think it's for individual parents to, to do what they believe to be right by their children. I won't criticise individuals for the choices they make. And you don't always know the circumstances behind those decisions either. But personally, I think our state schools and the, the staff within them do a brilliant job. I want them to be better supported. I want them to continue to raise standards. I want the absolute best for all of our children, especially those for whom education will be life-changing. Are your children at school? Do they worry when you turn up at the door? <laughs> <laughs> You've got the shadow education secretary. They suddenly will have to behave. Um, it's obviously over time as they've as they've seen me a bit more on the television or, or they've heard me on the radio. People are more keen to chat about what they about what they think is important. But you know the the the, ch- the the staff where my children go to school they're far too professional and far too focused on managing the the other thirty kids the thirty kids that they're responsible for to to be uh, uh, hustling me. <laughs> and what are you like as a parent? Are you very like your mum was, or you've got a partner or husband as well? Are you do you share it obviously much more? Do you then appreciate that enormously because you didn't have a father around? I recognise now just how big a responsibility it must must have been to, to raise a child on your own. And I couldn't do this job without an incredibly support of an understanding husband um, because the life of an MP is a very peculiar life at different times. And in this role, I do spend a lot of time travelling the country now and meeting with college leaders, visiting universities, nurseries, and it's time consuming. What I also reflect on is that my mum did work really hard, especially as I got older, but I don't remember feeling that that was a problem. I just remember we had lots of fun together and the time that we had together was, was special. And I want to make sure that I have those experiences and spend all that time with my own children so that that's what they remember, not just me kind of, you know, coming back late because I've been voting in Parliament. Right. Keir Starmer talked about how much he loved music and all the instruments he played. And you obviously played the violin. How did you get to do that? Did someone give you a violin? Did the school do it? And how can schools do that now? Because there's so much less music around, really. So we had some kind of, I recall, I think it was when I was about nine, eight or nine, we had um, a musical aptitude test. We all took this test, the whole class. And then quite a sizable number of us were then able to choose from a range of options, uh, a range of different instruments. And I chose the violin and I played it from then on right throughout secondary school. Uh, the lessons were mainly paid for. They then became means tested over time as budgets kind of contracted, but I was given a violin. I mean, that was incredible. And, you know, the, the cost of that alone would have, you know, been enough. Uh, my mum, I'm sure my mum probably would have done her best to save the money and find it somehow. She always seemed to find a way to to do that. But I know for, for some of the kids that were there, that, that would have been far more of a challenge. So expanding access to music uh, and expanding access to sport and drama and, and all of that is so incredibly important. And sometimes it becomes this false choice between you either want high academic standards, you want children to be literate and numerate, and, or you want them to have uh, a really creative curriculum too. I think the two, when, when they work effectively, when they work most effectively are when they complement one another. And Keir Starmer's also talked about the importance of oracy, of speaking, as well as literacy. Is that partly, again, to do with boosting children's confidence and giving children in the state system the confidence that those in the private system get? It is about confidence and giving all young people the chance to to express themselves and to communicate, but also to know that they have a role in shaping the future, not just responding to it, but being a part of creating something as a country and that they have a role to play within that. And and again, returning to private schools, they often put great store in that and they recognise the benefits that it brings. And I know there are lots of state schools that do oracy, embedding it in the curriculum and do it incredibly effectively. And those schools that will run debating clubs and, and a whole range of different activities for children. But I want to make sure that all children get access to oracy, that it, it is embedded and that we do support young people to be more confident, to be more resilient and to be comfortable in their own skin and to be who they want to be. 
getting on in life shouldn't be about changing who you are because you feel that's what others expect of you. It's about being comfortable and confident as an individual in the way that you want to be and feeling that you shouldn't have to change who you are in order to get on. There's been a real debate as well about how many people are going to university. So Keir Starmer said you're not going to do the free tuition fees, but do you think there's roughly the right number of people going to university or should there be more? Should more do apprenticeships? Because there's quite an interesting dynamic between you and Gillian Keegan, who did an apprenticeship. She says, in a way, you were quite privileged because you went to Oxford. Where do you stand on all of that? And do you think there is that interesting contrast between the two of you? For me, it's about young people having a genuine choice about what's right for them. And at the moment, lots of young people who would love to do an apprenticeship aren't getting that opportunity because we're seeing falling number falling numbers of apprenticeship starts, particularly amongst under-19s. But alongside that, lots of young people who would love to go to university don't get that chance either. So the, the figure that people often talk about, that 50% of young people going to university, it's not 50% in Sunderland, I can tell you. And that figure, I think, masks... A bigger issue that sits underneath it. And should it be 50% in Sunderland? Um, I, I see no reason why it shouldn't be you know, the young people in Sunderland are any, any less talented than young mm. people anywhere else. And if young people there want to go to university, that's absolutely what they should do. Mm. If they want to take a different path, if they want an apprenticeship or they want to then at 18 go into employment, again, that's it should be about people having real choice about what's right for them. But it, that, that's not where we are at the moment. What do you think of these rip-off degrees? I mean... They're never really mentioned which they are. I mean, occasionally they talk about sort of surf school or golf management, but are they really rip-off degrees and are they really useless degrees? Or do you think actually most degrees have some sort of value? I think that there is value that comes through learning and through study, and that's at university, absolutely, but it's all throughout our lives as well. And I don't think that can be captured in purely economic terms. I don't think you capture the value and the worth of, of learning and education by a salary that you will have achieved 15 months after graduation, not least when you're considering parts of the country where you just have fewer graduate mm. How much jobs. were you earning, can you remember? When I left university? It was 15 months after university. Uh, because you work for a charity, didn't you? I, so I, work, I was working for Sunderland City Council when I graduated. I think I was earning, so this would have been in 2005, about £19,000 a year. So you it know, probably wouldn't qualify for not being a rip-off degree. No, and I think, you know, that is the irony of it all, yeah. that ministers refuse to say, refuse to define which courses, which institutions, what exactly they mean. Mm. It's just... They're just seeking to send a message. And the message that they are sending to young people is that, you know, to young people from backgrounds like mine, but today is that university isn't for you. And I think that is an incredibly damaging message to send to young people. When the odds that some young people have had to overcome to get where they are, you know, when I visited some universities that are doing amazing work around widening participation, particularly in supporting young people when they're at university. So not just getting them there, but supporting them while they're there. They've often had to overcome some really big challenges in their lives, young people who are care experienced, um, young people who have experienced real trauma in their lives, far beyond anything I ever went through. And to then be so dismissive of what they've done. And also to, to think that somehow education doesn't have value. Edu learning, education, study, it's, it's good for us as people. It's useful, worthwhile for the individual, but it's better for all of us as a society. And to get to a place where we had our universities at the forefront of, pandemic, of the pandemic response, developing the vaccine, the impact they have in our regional economies, and then to say, well, we don't, we're not interested in that, and just constantly picking fights. I think universities are a public good and we should recognise them as such, not just constantly making them a political battleground. The other thing is, you mentioned the pandemic. Do you think in future it's absolutely imperative that we don't shut schools down if there's another pandemic? Do you, I mean, the, the damage has been so great. What would you do if you were in charge and there are another pandemic? I mean, I have considerable sympathy for the really difficult decisions that were made in the early phase of the pandemic when we were grappling with something so unknown. And... I, you know, I think the decision to close schools at that stage in the, with the level of uncertainty around this unknown virus was absolutely the right thing to do. What I struggle with is that we were very slow to get schools back up and functioning as quickly as we should have done. And I think what is absolutely inexcusable, and we will look back in a decade or so and reflect on it as a source of national shame, I believe, 
the failure to put in place a proper post-pandemic recovery plan for children coming out of that. The government knew it was necessary. That's why they asked Sir Kevin Collins to do the work around it. They thanked him for his report, sent him on his way, and then Rishi Sunak said that he'd maxed out on support that was available for children. That will have a very long, um, that will have a very long tail. It will cast a long shadow over our country's economic success as well as the life chances um, of our children. So you might be education secretary in eighteen months' time or even a year's time. Is that a terrifying thought or an exciting one? The prospect of winning an election, having lost four general elections and being able to change our country, not just talk about the difference we would make, is exciting and daunting in equal measure. But I'm so aware that we've got to fight for every vote. No one's, no one's voted yet. We've still got a long way to go and we've got to earn the trust of the British people. But the chance to change our country and to transform education and to shatter that class ceiling, to break down barriers, to give all young people the chance to get on. That's what I came into politics to do. And if I were able to do that as education secretary, it would be wonderful. And looking back at yourself as a child growing up in Washington, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? I'm not sure it's one thing in particular that I wish I'd known. And I was always quite determined but I'd probably tell myself just to have a bit more self-belief and never allow other people to tell you what you shouldn't do. And that's what I'd say to young people today. People have always got opinions about what you shouldn't be doing. Never mind what you should be doing. There's always people that will, that will seek to impose a certain view of the world on you, but find your own way, have some self-belief and don't let others hold you back. You've been listening to What I Wish I'd Known in association with Speakers for Schools, the youth social mobility charity that provides inspirational talks and work experience opportunities with Rachel Sylvester and Alice Thompson and our guest on this episode, Bridget Philipson. The series producer is Anya Pierce. If you enjoyed what you heard, why not pick up a copy of our book, What I Wish I'd Known When I Was Young? Or you can follow the podcast so you never miss an episode. And of course, you can listen back to all our previous episodes on the Free Times Radio app or download them from wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Thank you.